0: Architecture doesn't exist in a vacuum, and neither should you. Whether it's a design critique or understanding how design connects to a larger world, gaining insight is invaluable for architecture students. Well, actually, all students in general. In these interview sessions, guests from professors to professionals and everyone in between will share their experiences and thoughts on design and the built environment. In this episode, we're going to be talking to Nick Savage, who is pretty much the be-all and end-all guy. He's going to talk about being a bracket designer in a second, but he works at MCM. He oversees a lot of the cool projects that you might have seen in the GTA or around the world. Nick has probably involved himself in some way or fashion to make sure that that's actually come across and made proper. So without further ado, Nick, could you care to introduce yourself very quickly?
1: Yeah. Hi, my name is Nick Savage. I work for a company called Millworks Custom Manufacturing, uh, and my job there is a business development and solutions. So I I do outreach for future projects, and then uh, help to help to detail uh, projects that come in.
0: I think it it serves a little bit more than just that. Like, it makes it sound like it's a very corporate role. I I'd suspect that you really would benefit explaining to the audience what it is that you actually really do. I mean, that's like when people say, "I'm a director." It's like, of what's course, that mean? of course. Okay, so quick rundown.
1: I, I've been at MCM for nine and a half years. Uh, I spent the first uh, two years uh, in and out of co-op, and then the following two years as a drafts person, drawing cabinets, learning the details, drawing by drawing by drawing. I probably drew about a thousand. Cabinets. After two years, I had a, a really interesting opportunity and I was able to become a project manager on some work from some local friend architects named uh, Puya Bakhtash and Alec Josephson, which some people may know of, uh, and this opportunity to sort of start my project management career was such a kind of amazing project. Uh, put me in a position where then lots of interesting projects followed. So I spent uh, I spent uh, four years straight just doing this very difficult work, mm-hmm. uh, and then the requests people started to understand that we were there to support them in this role, and so the work kept coming and coming and coming. Uh, and I got to the point where I couldn't take it all on myself. So what I do is I support a team of project managers that now roll out this work for architects. So uh, we are you know really one to one detailed design uh and is really what we we you know think that we are great at
0: uh, so I, I think it's important to put out there though because i think you did mention alex and puya and and i think that a lot of students don't necessarily know the names of the people but they know the company partisans yeah, in particular. Partizans, right? partizans, partizans. and 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 many of you guys if you don't know i I will put the link to their website in the show notes and certainly to mcm as well but i, I think that for, for people that aren't aware i think you got verbalize and present the kind of visuals here. Um, give them an example, like, I, I, mean, I, could, I could draw on bar of Val, but I mean, which was the project that you would say best represents your work with MCM with respect to architecture?
1: Sure. So there's about a sort of, there's a short list of about six jobs. Uh, I think that, uh, we're a large custom manufacturer and we specialize in wood, but also in metal production. So there are two really wonderful projects we've accomplished with partisans, which are, which are Barreval, as you mentioned, and, and the Grotto sauna. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, and then, uh, Alongside this, uh, we've been able to do some really beautiful work with Diamond and Schmidt. Last year, we produced uh, some feature elements for the Senate of Canada, Mm -hmm. and this was all done in in bronze uh, cladding, basically. This Mm -hmm. is a panel project. So we do paneling, perforation, uh, and custom millwork. We do uh, some exterior cladding, uh, but we can basically make anything. I mean, the real thing is, is people ask me, what do we do? I say, well, whatever you can, whatever you can imagine, we can likely build it for you.
0: Yeah. So I just want to say congratulations on both those projects. Uh, Barval's a little bit older and Grotto certainly is older, but um, just recently, I think the uh, the Diamond Schmidt project just won another award. So congratulations yeah. on that. So you're right. Uh, the firm that you work in is basically the instrumental agency that makes those things happen right as much as we like to really envision cool innovative design work in our 3d renderings and you and our models the realize that someone's got to make it happen and whether it's and this is where I think it would be worthwhile to have you tell us what do you mean by bracket architect architecture yeah, exactly
1: so so when we get to
0: draw in Rhino uh,
1: and model uh, in all our wonderful programs there are, there are things that just don't exist like gravity and, <laughs> and physics. So when you have anything that you want to stick into a building, uh, it has to somehow be attached to the building itself. So uh, the term bracket designer is kind of a, a kind of a small inside joke between me and some friends in that, in that really this is where we live, that the architect decides on the finish, the look, and then the general contractor is responsible to build out the building. And then we kind of exist between this surface veneer and then the, the sort of concrete of the GC or whatever it happens to be. Uh, it, it's up to us to help the architects understand what are the best methods uh, in, that, in that middle space. And, and it's amazing how that middle space can start to inform the actual design of, 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 the, of the piece itself, to be honest. A really good example is that uh, there was a really interesting debate on, on the Senate of Canada about panel width. You know, mm-hmm. they wanted these uh, 40 inch wide panels, but because of material science, they could really only have 20 inch wide panels. And this was the conversation. Where is that design decision coming from? Is it okay for it to come from a position of material science and not of strictly design? And it's, and it's kind of my job to convince architects, architects don't think anything has fasteners or joints. Mm-hmm. And it's my job to explain to them, but then also reflect back on previous work, not just the work that I've been, but anywhere to, to tell them to go back and take another look, you know, I bet you that that thing has some visible screws and some joints and some seams. There's some way that this was accomplished, right? And this is sometimes what I think we're lacking a little bit, although it's a little bit unclear if we should be taught this, but certainly these kind of principles of, of how how does metal work, how does wood work, you know, what kinds of things are available to us? What are the tools that we then use uh, to work on these products? Like there, there's a kind of a, a blind spot in the architectural profession as it stands uh, for the most part when it comes, when it comes to these really physical,
0: physical things. Well, you know, I'm going to talk, talk about that because there's a whole bunch of things that you said there that makes a lot of sense and that I think you probably have some insights on and can help the audience understand a little bit better. I think you talked about that notion of what architects know. So on the one hand, I'm, I'm hearing two things. I'm hearing... A, that, you know, architects come up with, you said architects come up with a certain design, and then there's the GC, and then we're the guys in between. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you've also described that architects should have an understanding of these things, and that you got to look at how these things are assembled. So what would you say is really instrumental advice for students studying architecture now to really move into the future, like in in this kind of discipline that you are involved in? On the one hand, I'm worried that now you're going to say, well, Vince, the students should learn all this stuff. And then that kind of removes or diminishes your role. And at the same time, uh, it would be a disservice to say architects should not be aware of how things come together and just pretty much lay it on your table.
1: Yeah. So, okay, there's some things that are really important and some things that are less. It's important that you understand conceptually how all of these materials uh, work and operate. It's not necessarily important that you draw every screw. So, um, it, you know, uh, there, there, your document that you produce, you know, there's a sort of, I can't remember who told me this, but you know, it's not, I'm not the first person, you know, architects don't make buildings, they make drawings. Mm -hmm. So that drawing needs to explain to a third party what needs to be done. Every single thing, an entire issued for construction document, not one single thing is being made off of that drawing. That drawing is being used to tender out to, to a whole group of people, glass people and concrete people and tile people and, and fabricators like myself and millwork, they then use your drawing as a roadmap to, to do the real drawing. So, mm-hmm. so there's a certain point where you have to understand enough to telegraph what this final product needs to look like, but I actually find there's sometimes uh, a, a real attempt to, to finalize a design at one-to-one without really the knowledge there to do so. So you end up expending a lot of time and energy uh, in trying to put down details into a document that are at the end of the day are just gonna be changed. So, so there's, it's, it's, you know, there's a whole conversation to be had about, about drawings and how we represent buildings on the page and how these tools like Revit produce an enormous amount of lines and papers that might ne- not necessarily need to be there. Mm-hmm. But I think the best way to reduce this amount of information that we shove into a drawing set is is if you could understand what each piece is doing, mm-hmm. then, then you would then not have to dump so much information on the page to explain what you need to get done.
0: So if that's the case, then is there like a definitive boundary that you would say that as, as architects? Because I mean, you're the one that at the end of the day has to deal with the garbage or crap that I send you, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm pretty sure if you look at, for example, the grotto project, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think that the resolution of all those pieces of wood, not only to be seamless visually, but also to have a hermetic seal, right? Mm-hmm. To make sure that, that stuff didn't leak out. Mm-hmm. is it, not a small feat. And I'm not sure, I don't want, don't want to diminish the work that the folks at Partisans did, but, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot on your shoulders that was responsible for getting that kind of resolution. So, you know, you're saying that we shouldn't have to worry about knowing where every single screw is. But what is the, what is the boundary? What, what is the thing that I should say, you know what, let it to go to Nick?
1: Yeah, this is, this is like the whole question, Vince. Like this is really the question. Um, you know, one thing that I think uh, we as architects are, need to do more is, is to feel comfortable to ask stupid questions. Oh. So what has happened at the onset of a lot of my most successful projects, the ones that I'm the most proud of, was an early meeting. Where, where knowledgeable people, engineers, fabricators, designers, and even the client all sit in a room on day one and we decide what are our goals? How we accomplish them? What's the game plan? Uh, Mm -hmm. and if you, uh, can do a quick meeting, we do this ourselves internally. So we do that initial game plan with the engineers and the architects and everything else. And then if I send out the pricing, figure out how much it costs, send them a couple details, get them interested, engage them enough to get it through the tendering process and get my purchase order. Mm -hmm. I then do another one of those meetings internally where I ask all the same stupid questions where (laughs) I say, what's our goal here? What do we want to accomplish? How do we want to, how do we want to get there? And then how are we going to get there? So Mm -hmm. I think, I think often, um, uh, pick up the phone. Uh, know who your fabricators are, uh, know who your trades are, um, spend time on site, uh, ask questions okay. and find a mentor. I mean, architecture is meant to be a mentorship profession. If mm-hmm. you don't have a person that you can look to, uh, then, then start to look for one. Cause I think really, this is the real secret uh, of success within, within architecture is, okay. is mentorship.
0: Well, I was going to say that with respect to mentorship, it's not just simply knowing a person; it's also knowing materials and methods. And I think that's where a, a person in your position is really indispensable, because I couldn't imagine a lot of the work that's been done, both Diamond Schmidt and and Partisans, for example, would have been feasible were it not for not only having an interesting idea, but they don't, they don't know what is feasible. Like I'm pretty sure at some point they said, Hey, can, you know, can copper do this? Or can uh, we do this with uh, the, the the CNC paths for this particular piece of wood? I, I think that that's something that even if one were to talk to me, like I'm a, I'm a prof, I'm supposed to know this stuff. I would still say, you know what? I don't know what they're doing at X, Y, Z place, but uh, maybe we can take a look at it. How, how is one supposed to find that out? Like architecture is one of these p- professions where we're supposed to be at the Cutting edge and aware of every single new change because architecture does reflect a huge shift in any given technology and an adoption. So how how do I keep up to date with all this crazy technological change, and especially how it brings architecture together?
1: Yeah, what a good question. I mean, especially considering the fact that things are updating so quickly, right? Yeah. You know, it's like every every two years you're out of date if you put if you stuck your head in the ground. You know. Uh, Fundamentally, I think that 95%, like, you know, if architecture is a series of building blocks. A lot of the general principles, 95% of what we're building is based on on really simple building practices and building principles. So, mm-hmm. you know, for 95% of these questions, Vince, the, the answer is probably that it should happen within the architectural profession. Mm-hmm. I think that architects should know better how foundations are made. What are the issues? <laughs> you know, I had to build a house and then we dug a big foundation next to the neighbor and we were as careful as we could, but then the neighbor's foundation was parged and it was made from from blocks and it started to split. And then you, you know things are gonna go wrong. Like Okay, that's a bit of a random story, but all I mean to say is that that you're going to walk into this profession and, and stuff is going to go wrong on, on every project, basically. You just mm-hmm. have to assume that. But then what you need to be able to do is to respond to those problems effectively. And mm-hmm. so in this case, what I mean to say is by understanding... Um, how I'm digging a foundation and if I'm doing it the right way and how the neighbor's foundation is built and what's the condition inside. When they come to us and they have this huge panic, you know, it's important that you f- that you understand what's happening, but then you also go to the experts. In this case, you know, we brought in engineers, third-party engineers. They came in, they did all the inspections. They said, you know, these are the reasons. The wall is, is structurally sound. It's just parging moving on the inside for X and Y reason. Uh, and, and, and so, again, I wasn't able to answer that question. I knew approximately what the problem was, Mm -hmm. but I didn't then jump out of my own expertise to pretend like I knew. We brought in somebody that knew better. So again, you guys are are tied through this document to so much liability. It's crazy. So don't take on any more, you know, (laughs) stay in your lane to a certain degree, you know, be willing to say, I don't know, but I'll get back to you. Then go
0: find the right person and then ask them. You know what, I actually like that analogy that you use with respect to Lego, because I, I think that this is actually a really good question to f- frame with that analogy, where if you said 90 or 95% of what we should know is like Lego, right? And then there's this one offs, like, and I will take it to the next level of Lego, right? We know that now there's a lot of bespoke custom Lego, like you can get a yeah, yeah, Potter exactly. Lego. And can like,
1: know. <laughs> yeah,
0: when was the next time I needed like a dragon wing piece of Lego? And it just happens to be yeah, about exactly. one Lord of the Rings set or something. So we're seeing a lot more of that happening and more dragon and, wings certainly yeah, there like, yeah. so, so i mean here's the problem so we're seeing a lot of bespoke pieces in architecture and yep. obviously the work that you deal with is explicitly dealing with that you don't you don't go to nick to get off the shelf stuff from Home Depot, right? You
1: also go to Nick, not for Home Depot stuff, but but we do a really wide range. You know, just like an architectural practice, you have your bread and butter and then your really specialized projects. So do we.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So we do a huge business in acoustic paneling. We do a huge retail business. We produce all the Roots and Rogers stores in Canada. Mm-hmm. You know what I would tell you is really interesting about that. If you dig down into either of those kinds of work, which really I didn't have a lot to do with for my first eight years at MCM, mm-hmm. um, they're still interesting. There's yeah. still problems. There's still solutions. It's not boring. It's not it's not garbage work. It really mm-hmm. is highly complex, highly interesting. There are there are real solutions that have to be involved at every stage. Now I'm really lucky that often the work that I work on gets to be in magazines and win awards and do really wonderful things, which I'm really thankful for. And because I came out of the architectural profession, I have a real appreciation for it. Mm -hmm. But I gotta tell you, it's all making stuff is all interesting. And and it doesn't have to be on on the front page of a magazine to be cool or or difficult or engaging.
0: But are you finding that more and more Firms are finding that they have to go down the route of the bespoke and the kind of custom fabrication well, you know kind of thing. Gen- you
1: know, what's generating this requirement? Uh, I,
0: I hope it's not going to be me, but yes, tell me.
1: Well, in some in some ways, I mean, you. I mean, on day one of architecture school, I can't remember if it was you taught us or not, but there's the whole form Z problem. But what I mean to say is, let's not let's well, not be. Why does everyone
0: blame I, me? I swear to God, that was Ford, the institution, Ford, think, not the instructor, what I man.
1: Mean is it's coming from these digital programs? It's coming from the grasshopper, it's coming from the rhino, it's coming. The, the, the tools are allowing the architects to be more creative in the digital space and that's mm-hmm. translating into more people being ambitious in the physical space.
0: Okay, but do you think that that's just a fad or do you see that as, cause I mean, this is talking about sustaining a lot of the high value projects you got. So is it a fad or do you see no, like this no kind No way,
1: of- no way. I mean, here's a good example. You remember like in when people first were doing websites, Mm-hmm. And and you could have like a little moving GIF, and everyone mm-hmm. thought, "Oh, that's great." Well, there was a couple years there in the early '90s where you'd open up a web page, and everything on that page was swinging and moving, and mm-hmm. you couldn't find a link on it that wasn't that wasn't moving. Yep. And then people learned that just because we can doesn't mean we should. Right. So at the beginning, when all these tools like there was a kind of explosion of parametric uh, architecture when Grasshopper became mm-hmm. commonplace, and a lot of it was pretty ugly. Mm -hmm. and somehow unnecessary but then as people learn to uh engage uh, you know you first you learn the tool then you figure out what it can do then you sort of grow into the ability to design well in that tool you know what i mean Mm -hmm.
0: so then that brings me to another point so if we're getting a lot of projects I, i maybe you should walk me through um, how we would get a project? So, say for example, I've designed a new restaurant. Okay, let's just say for example, a really cool restaurant, a coffee shop, and it's got some crazy geometries on the inside. And I've got my people working on Grasshopper, and it looks beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I just go, okay, Nick, it's at your feet now. Yeah. What are we going to do next? How are we going to make this happen? What What do you do? What What do you want? Like, is there a specific file type? Exactly. Is there specific formatting? Like, how do you do this?
1: So, so uh, first and foremost every job, even the most expensive job is built on a budget and, and nobody is spending money for no reason. So mm-hmm. the first question is how are we going to do this efficiently and effectively? If, if, uh, a project, uh, it has to have 10,000 parts, do ev- do all 10,000 of those parts need to be unique. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll tell you good examples. like we have an interesting trellis that's happening and we're trying to figure out it's like moving and twisting as it moves around this space mm-hmm. and uh, and we need to to attach it somehow so we've asked the architect rather than to have all of these splines have irregular radiuses so the mm-hmm. radius changes as it goes through each piece we've asked them they can build it for many radiuses but then any given radius is consistent so that we can roll it on a rolling machine mm-hmm. so the question of 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 what has to change has to do with two things. It has to do with what technologies exist to effectively perform this. So mm-hmm. uh, in the era of customization, actually, we're in the kind of the beginnings of this, you know, if you think about these beautiful projects I- in China, where it's like the scale uh, on a building, and each little scale is is its unique own little part, right. and there are 50 million unique parts. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, 100 years ago, you, I mean, you could do it, but you'd spend your whole life doing it. There are now the tools that allow for that customization, but you still first have to ask yourself, should it be that custom? Mm -hmm. What am I getting out of it? You know, here are the costs. If you can simplify so that instead of having 10,000 unique parts, we can just have 10 unique parts, right? We can Mm -hmm. have like a series of open to close and then you can mix and match those 10 parts and then what's the difference, right? Mm -hmm. So first, first you need to talk about what are the tools? So you start with the image and you say, okay, this looks beautiful. Mm-hmm. And then you say, what are some of the methods that we could produce? A really good example is with the senate of Canada. Mm-hmm. We wanted to put holes in a sheet of metal. Okay. The the choice was originally um steel, uh mm-hmm. clad with um with brass plating. Uh and if it's steel, we have the option to laser cut or water jet or punch. Mm-hmm. Later on, they switched this spec to bronze. Now the bronze is reflective. Mm-hmm. I can no longer laser cut because the laser is is light and mm-hmm. it reflects off this surface. So now I'm down to two options. I can water jet or I can punch. Mm-hmm. Now uh, we wanted millions and millions of holes in this. We wanted 900 holes a square foot. Mm-hmm. And then you go to the water jet cutter and he sends you a bill for like a billion dollars because each of those holes has to be cut individually mm-hmm. quite slowly. Whereas a turret punch is, is like, a, sounds like a Gatling gun. Mm -hmm. So again, the efficiency of that method, and then there's other problems because then that method then creates deformation in the panel. So then this conversation all happens Almost on day one, if you can, like, you know, the advantage of having gone through the gauntlet in the way that I have is I think at this point I've accomplished uh, or completed, I think a little over 200 jobs for Gregory in the nine and a half years that I've been there. In architecture, you're, it's, that pace is never going to happen. You know, yeah. I, I work on, on four to five jobs at any given time. And those jobs last between four weeks and six months. And then we move on. So oh, that's
0: fast turnover, man.
1: Super fast turnover. The biggest jobs I do, these really big stairs that I used to do as a project manager, million and a half dollars for one stair, maybe that's six months. And in the grand scheme of things, as far as the timeline of architecture, that's a day. So what I mean to say is that allows us to build the experience so that every new unique problem isn't necessarily looked at in space. We say, oh, this reminds me a lot of these couple other projects. And we start mm-hmm. to pull up out those details. And we say, okay, what's different about this than this? And then we alter it or we change it. I mean, or if we're really lucky, we just use it. Like if, if it's not broke, don't fix it kind of idea. Right. So mm-hmm. uh, what happens is the same thing that's happening with us within the, the manufacturing sphere is also happening to these architects. The problem is, is that architecture happens over many years. This is why it takes 40 years to train an architect. because mm-hmm. It takes a long time to build a building. Right. And really the best way to learn is to do so. So you've got to be out there doing. I mean, there's no way there's no way to sit in the dark with it with a with a book light and learn how to be an architect. It, well, no amount of of reading on the Internet is going to get you there.
0: I, I agree with you and specifically the two things that you were raising about the financial uh, as well as the material and method uh, issues. I think that one thing that's really imperative is that I got to bring my kids down to see MCM. I got, you're going to have to give my kids a walking tour. Honestly, man, like anytime, anytime. once the pandemic's done, you, you say that now. And it's like, okay, I got like a hundred kids. I want to check out this place because here's this problem. Like I, I, yeah, I know, but hear me out here. Like I don't think a people know what is in your shop. I think that at best the students know what's in our shop, which is a very small, you know, like it's a maker space essentially, right? It's not at the industrial scale. We are not doing any water jet stuff. We're not dealing with like, you know, any, uh, robotics that control like welding and stuff like that we don't have that facility in schools uh, maybe some places do have that benefit but certainly we don't right mm-hmm. so how do you propose that aside from me bringing my students out to your site they, mm-hmm. that they will understand that there's 15 ways to skin a cat or, or like you know multiple ways to like puncture and perforate uh steel right like they don't know this and you're not gonna like look it up online right that, that's a strange request how would you propose that they do it outside of just checking out your you walk your walking the floor
1: But I think that's kind of the answer. I think you actually have found the answer, which is to say you can't do it behind a desk. Like, like, okay, so within the academic setting, uh, I thought that so much as everyone hated them, you know, forcing us to do these one-to-one building sections, mm-hmm. actually a really interesting exercise. Uh, forcing people to do these like one-to-twenty scale models as groups, mm-hmm. you know, the thing you make is kind of like garbage the second that it's done because they of everything. Yeah. yeah, they're terrible. But but you know what? You're learning a couple things. You're forced. Like when I want to remember something, I'll write it down. I don't keep that piece of paper, but the mm-hmm. act of writing it down helps me to internalize it. It's right. the same thing. There's been some advice on this podcast about sketching over existing plans or existing mm-hmm. details. This isn't about stealing their idea. It's about the fact that we are physical people architects. And if you think just by glossing over that page, you think if you don't stop and you don't start to dissect and you don't start to draw on your own hand that you're going to remember this in a year or even a day, you're not mm-hmm. going to. So so you kind of have to do an autopsy on as much architecture as you can uh, and and really try to, Folk, like don't you just, you know, scrolling through a blog is not what I mm-hmm. mean. Uh, I mean, I mean real meaningful, uh, you know, a, a real autopsy, you know, where well, you well, actually physically pull it apart and see what's inside. This is, I think, the very first, very best way uh, to start to learn uh, from the best people. You start with phenomenal projects that are detailed correctly, and you make people f- actually look at what the heck is going on.
0: Okay, but Nick, let me, let me just... Talk this through here because we see, let's say, for example, the um great projects that are done with, and I'm not gonna use projects that you've done as I but like we yeah. see some really amazing glossy images of really crazy, whether it's 3D printed concrete buildings or yeah. it's like, oh my god, they laser cut, they water jet the hell out of that. Yeah. And and you see that, but then it's just a passing byline It says this was done. It was Corten steel and they did it this way. And like they had a robotic folding device that, you know, did X, Y, Z. And it's like, okay, it's just a byline. And at best, we go to Detail Magazine, where if I really yeah, want exactly. to know. Well, right? I was going
1: to say Detail ma- I mean, listen, I, I didn't know this in, in, in retrospect, but I spent most architecture school like you know, nose deep in these detail magazines. I didn't mm-hmm. quite know why, mm-hmm. but, but I, th- I think I know now, but, but then that's, yes, kind of, yes, you know, get, go to the library, look at those details, the detail does the best job that I can think of to, to actually show how, not just what they look like, but how they're done. You know, I have a lot of respect for, for how Renzo Piano uh, mm-hmm. approaches architecture. He sort of approaches architecture, like every project is a machine, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I love this concept because, you know, one of the, my favorite things to build are stairs and that's because mysterious stairs are machines buildings are machines Mm -hmm. not stationary they don't stand still everything's moving everything's growing and shrinking and being pushed by wind or pushed by gravity or you know a stair itself is undergoing an enormous amount of what our my friend andrea atkins calls aerobic aerobics Mm -hmm. that they're actually (laughs) and then so there is there is uh, you know how do you teach all of this in in five years is the question. And where do you stop? Mm-hmm. I do think that a cursory knowledge of of not building science. Building science, it's great that they're teaching it. They should mm-hmm. continue to, but but actual physical properties of materials. Mm. Why are we picking woods? What woods are good for exterior? What goods are woods are good for interior? What woods are heavier or lighter or stiffer or not, or colors or anything else? Mm-hmm. Why are we using hot rolled steel versus cold rolled steel? You know, there's really simple exercises. Like, you know, I always tell the architects that the biggest surprise in my life was how complicated doors are. <laughs> Ask an architect to draw a door. They, they don't know. They just don't know. And then probably Probably an architect should know how to draw a door and a window like mm-hmm. you should be able to take a, even an undergrad level architect and say draw me a window and a soffit condition uh, with mm-hmm. air barrier and vapor barrier you know on the on the back of a of, of a piece of paper none of them really mm-hmm. know so we should you know pfft, hard to know because then here's my other here's my counterpoint mm-hmm. which is that the, the undergraduate education at waterloo was really theoretical and what that meant is you filled in in the gaps mm-hmm. yourself because, yep. you know, and smart people go to these programs, so you teach them almost a humanities degree, history, cultural history, um, you know, design, give them time to design, uh, sort of push them to be more creative, to push the boundaries, to sort of believe in themselves, mm-hmm. and to think, teach them how to think, and then mm-hmm. they'll go off and think themselves now. In addition to that, I really think there should be a kind of some kind of materials course, something to explain to them why are we specking these things? What are we doing? You know, also a spec writing course. Spec writing course would be number one like there isn't enough spec writing. When, as a person who's doing estimating, that actual legal document of the spec is actually a lot more important than the drawings you put on the page. If, if something is different, the, the lawyer is gonna, is gonna go to the spec, not to the drawing.
0: So, let's so just, uh, if you mind just explaining a little bit on specs and spec writing, because I I think a lot of people don't understand when Don't even see talked, these documents, yeah. I think. Well, yeah, because I was going to say, like, when, when people think architects, I know you've said rather quickly that, you know, architects produce not buildings, but drawings. I think they also, in part and parcel with their documents is, of course, specs, totally, right? which, totally. which is basically architects the instructions, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, no, I, I agree. Let's add that to this. Yeah. Architects, well, because it's really important, actually, that architects produce drawings and legal documents mm-hmm. and then and that drawing and that and that written document act together as a legal document and and then they they work together you cannot have one without the other so yep. a specification is is a document that tells you the principles by which the entire job is being built. You know, for me, I go to section, to the millwork section, section six and section section nine, and I'm looking for architectural metals. I'm looking for millwork. I'm looking for soffits. I'm looking for wall panels. Mm -hmm. And, and it tells me um, the kinds of lacquers that I'm allowed to use, the thicknesses of the material, the kinds of veneer, Mm -hmm. the, the, so, so let's go really simple. You have a a wood wall. Okay. Mm -hmm. What wood? So, nine times out of 10, this is going to be veneer. So it's going to be a 148 thick wooden veneer. Architects refer to this as half mill veneer. Mm-hmm. And then then it's going to go over a substrate. Well, what's the substrate? In 90% of the cases, this is a fire-rated MDF substrate, five-eighths mm-hmm. of an inch or three-quarters of an inch thick. Behind this, 90% of the time, is a quarter-inch aluminum cleat, and then whatever your wall is, whether that be drywall or plywood substrate or steel stud, whatever mm-hmm. it happens to be. So even just to go that far, you know, there's, there's a... a, a A a kind of apocryphal story, but it actually happened, which is to say during a sort of early cred, I think we were probably second or third year. So late enough that there was an expectation that this person would know better, but uh, early enough that I don't think they can be blamed too much for not knowing. You know, the, the, I'm sure Vince, how many white buildings have you seen because render settings are white?
0: Of course. And then like, what's it made out of? And it could be brick. It could be concrete. It could be steel. Like no one knows, right? Just change the click, 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 done settings. It's now steel Vince. What? Right. Exactly. So to the response,
1: so the, 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 the sort of the critiquer saw this model. It was just a white everything. And mm-hmm. they said, explain to me this wall. Walk me through this wall. What's in the wall? Mm-hmm. And sort of the the students sort of bashfully, sort of half jokingly, but didn't know what to say, said wall stuff. And so, you know, that's and that's not that student's fault. That's the education's fault as far Ooh. as i
0: so, so I, actually, I do want to come back then. Like, tell me about this because I, I think that you alluded to it, but I think it's worth mentioning that you do have an architecture education. You have an architectural degree from Waterloo. Um, and, of course, I taught you, oh, my God, 20 years ago? 2005. Oh, my God. 2005. Okay, sorry.
1: September, September 2005 you taught me.
0: So, I am getting old, and now um, was before the dark times, before the rise of the empire. Okay. But anyways, so tell me about it, Nick. Tell me how the architectural education could be benefited, uh, you know, could, could benefit for, from something to make it so that the people coming out are more adept and able to successfully navigate the stuff that you're talking about right now.
1: Of course. Okay. So, you know, there is actually, uh, I think, one way that we can so, remember. So, You know, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Mm-hmm. to me, the end goal was to become a fabricator, right? So I can go back and untangle all the things that led to me to be a fabricator. And this is why we have to be very careful when we are really heavily prescriptive. You mm-hmm. know, if I wanted to learn how to draw every little piece, then I can go to architectural technology school. Mm-hmm. And then if I want somebody that's going to sit quietly and draw a building and, and include every screw and everything's where it needs to be, mm-hmm. then I hire an architectural technologist right let's not pigeonhole ourselves Mm -hmm. i think the beauty of the the sort of university architecture education is its openness is the idea that it's a sort of humanities degree Mm -hmm. everything degree so let's be careful as i come back and talk about what it needs what they should teach us so that Mm -hmm. i'm better at doing my job because remember what it taught me was able to get me there so that i now do my job so what, what are we talking about right where are you supposed to be learning and where are you supposed to be think, doing? So part of what I'm saying is that not all of this needs to be taught in school, but, but what needs to then happen is I don't think there's enough mentorship in this liminal space between school and when people choose to practice on their own or, or mm-hmm. however they grow up. This sort of young architect that walks out of their master's degree and is engaged in the office, I don't, I don't think there's enough. I think there should be a thicker layer, associate layer and then I think that they really like one associate should only have two or three good students. You know, these are employees under them who mm-hmm. they're really teaching them the craft. You know, I'm very, very lucky. Mm-hmm. I got the attention of one of the best builders in the country for the last nine years. Mm. If, if, if I have a question, Gregory, my boss, Gregory Ryback, the owner of MCM, he'll answer my phone at 9 p.m. at one in the morning on Sunday afternoon. It, like it, it, And actually that level of openness has been really inspiring to me. And I, I aspire to have that level of openness and engagement. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's allowed me for nine years, if I have a, sec- even a even the idea of a question, I'm 30 seconds away. If not from the answer, then the beginning. What was really interesting as I came into my own at MCM mm-hmm. was that I was able to use the knowledge that Gregory had on building practice And then I was able to say, hey, Gregory, look at this new tool I have. Look, I have Rhino and I have Grasshopper and all those things that would have been way too cost prohibitive just from a a coordination standpoint Mm -hmm. over. Don't worry about that part. Let me worry about how many parts there are and how it's going to fit together and if they're going to be the right size. Mm -hmm. Tell me the principles behind how I have to get there. So I think mentorship is a huge part of this. And I think that I I appreciate that architects need these quote unquote mentors Mm -hmm. within within uh, uh, the sort of getting their paperwork put together. And I think that I'm sure in some cases, those mentors are, are actually performing that job. But do you think that most mentors in the, in the sort of OAA are on the phone daily with the people that are, that are mentoring under them?
0: I'm not going to say anything because the OA is listening. So I'm. I'm, I'm, I'm no, I'm but uh, that's. <laughs> what I,
1: but then, but then, that's not that person's fault. Probably people who are willing to participate in this and are willing to be mentors. I bet you there's some architect in Toronto that has like 25 kids, mm-hmm. 30 kids. There's there's too many. Like there's no way you have to. You, it has to be individual time, individual attention. I, I think that's what's really powerful about studio. If you think about it, you know, in every other way that we teach, it's one person. At the front and thirty to a thousand people in the back listening. You know, it goes the other way in an architecture student uh, in an architecture studio. The student sits there, and it's the professor walking around, and the knowledge comes to them. And you spend that twenty minutes or half an hour or forty-five minutes, and it's really. About engaging between the architecture professor and the architecture student, and I wish that would happen more in the profession.
0: Well, you know what? That that's kind of like a one-on-one attention, and that's really important. But I'm also trying to figure out because on the one hand, you you were talking about just look if you get something done in Grasshopper, and it's like, no, nah, I don't want to have one on. I don't want to have one-offs. So I want to make sure if I can get some consistencies. So there's only two different types of units or something exactly, like that. So exactly. uh, let let me just talk though about one of the problems in in education where I, I find that. Yes, you talked about mentorship and certainly in the studio, there's a certain level of direct mentorship there. But, you know, you recall back in the old days uh, when I had to teach you guys some obscure software just to learn about computers. And you got to understand, back in the old days, like this is crazy because it's only 15 or so years ago. But even then, like I'd so go so far as 20 years ago when computers were still kind of new and unaware. And we had to teach that because we saw the writing on the wall where we said, look, man, kids have to know how to use computers because that's the way the industry's going. Now I'm faced with this situation where fabrication, like every and their, everyone and their mom, like kids in high school now have a 3D printer and mm-hmm. a laser cutter and mm-hmm. a whole bunch of other things. Right. So, At the same time, I'm really kind of frustrated when I hear about programs that are like, yeah, we have the laser cutter, the CNC router. And it's like, how are you able to say that you are teaching kids to move into the future if you're not talking about the next level? So to me, it's difficult because computers were able to quickly be seen as, okay, we got to update and make sure the curriculum does this stuff. But Mm -hmm. then other things that are specifically pertinent to the type of architecture that, as you said, is not a fad, that is gonna be the kind of standard operating procedure in practice where there is the bespoke, where there is this kind of awareness Mm -hmm. of materials, awareness of structure, awareness of cost. That stuff is is not really reinforced in all the curricula. So how do you propose that schools kind of do that? Because outside of the mentorship and outside of doing it on my own volition, you mm-hmm. need to find a way to not reinforce it, but just kind of make it even standardized across like what is the baseline level of understanding on the fabrication on the bespoke that we should integrate in in the way we dispense with architectural education?
1: So perfect answer would be to say that, you know, when an architect needs to know what happens in architecture school is that you take five architects and then you put them into an architecture school and then all five of those people need to teach a different course and and maybe one person ends up already being an expert in that and they get to sort of be the expert already but for the most part you're not going you're like fitting one to the other Mm -hmm. hire the faculty Here's your course, learn how to teach it. Now, I, there are so many reasons that that happened that we can't really untangle. But, but what I would say when an architect needs to know how something's built, he doesn't go ask another architect. Mm. So exactly like on the job site, is, you're surrounded by tradespeople, engineers, by woodworkers, by uh, you know, people doing exteriors, everything. More of those people need to be pulled into the architecture school. So during a crit, bring in a GC. Bring in a, bring in a, a, you know, there's some really cool companies that all they do. So a couple of my friends that that we find some, some kind of simpatico are people that go and work for companies that develop facades. Because once you're outside of say, screw it, I'm not designing building anymore. Once you're just talking about a layer, then all of a sudden they become, they get much more and much more deep into it and start to talk about how it's being made and how it's being fabricated and how else it's being done. So I, I think that, Um, we should bring in people with varied experience into the school basically.
0: Okay, so then let's talk about varied experience in school because talk about your sabbatical from school because I think that's an important part to talk about because you went to Waterloo with the intention of becoming an architect, capital mm-hmm. A architect license, mm-hmm. and you went through school and it was great education, what have you, and, and, and you aren't there. You aren't, I'm sorry, you were not a licensed architect, right? But you're still very happy. You can hear the passion in your voice about the stuff that you do. So talk about your I don't know, trajectory, the path you took with that architectural background and and how you ended up at MCM? Of course.
1: So um, I, I had a very typical beginning uh you know i was one of these students hyper focused on on design studio and iconography i really love the cultural history aspect at waterloo so anybody and then i know vince is one of the teachers back then that had to teach these poor poor elective courses if god forbid any professor teaching an elective course gave uh, the computers was too not much, an
0: elective too that much was a core more, that was okay. core man
1: so, but regardless so even then when you when you tried to give an assignment that started to encroach on on studio or iconography i'm pretty sure you got your hand swatted down. I'm fairly certain. But Uh, then I had the same problem internally, which is to say I had too much hyper focus on those things. And I didn't pay enough attention to my to my electives. Uh, This eventually, uh, it's funny, you know, people should embrace failure. I think way more often in architecture school. Uh, My academic background is such that I had walked into uh, the the school of architecture two years later than I should have. Uh, I actually had to go back uh, to an adult education center. I had to go back to high school to get the credits I needed to go to university. And and that experience left me a little bit more robust. And then into my third year, 3A I I was, you know, the the right in the middle when you're, you know, you get that first summer off. And then if you're in a co-op program, after that first summer, that's it. You're going straight, and you either working full time, 80 hours a week, for an architect in New York, or you're working full time, 80 hours a week, trying to get your education done at school. Mm-hmm. And 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 you know, we've, there have been some really interesting conversations on this podcast about mental health. And I think when you are going to push. <laughs> any student that hard you need to also give them the net right it's okay to push i think it's important to push you know i don't know why but even i don't complain about how stupidly hard they make architecture school it, it's it's bizarre i get that it's hard to get in because a lot of people want to do it but mm-hmm. then once you're in why are they making it so hard but that's neither here the cycle of abuse man we uh, sure about that, man. sure but it's interesting and, and you know what people love it they want to be abused in some way like like <laughs> when they're in it they're complaining but the second that they're out you know they're like oh when i was you know there's a lot Architects that say, you know, when I was in architecture school, nobody cared about our mental health, and nobody Mm -hmm. gave time off, and nobody cared about ADHD and everything else. And it's like, yeah, are you bragging about this? (laughs) Yeah, what what are you bragging about?
0: Smoking airplanes and (laughs) yeah,
1: exactly, exactly. There's a lot of things we used to do that we shouldn't do anymore. So, uh, the profession grows. Mm -hmm. So I also had this struggle, and I couldn't tell what it was, Vince. I couldn't tell whether. I, I was so down that I couldn't tell their whether I disliked school or I disliked the profession. Mm-hmm. So uh, thankfully a decision was made for me. And after three, I received an MNP, which is called a may not proceed. And mm-hmm. as an architecture student, there's probably nothing worse than you could be told uh, because all of a sudden it becomes aware to you, you're going off stream mm-hmm. you're leaving your class uh, and, and your certain, your future is uncertain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, and so it's a very scary moment. Uh, I continued on to my, to my, Uh, co-op in London Mm -hmm. Uh, rather than come home uh, to go to school in September which wasn't an option for me I stayed in London and continued to work for another four months now unfortunately this was 2008 so I think everybody remembers what happens in 2008 if they were working especially Mm -hmm. which is that everyone got fired yep so um, I was working for a company named Grimshaw they had 130 employees and 40 of them were were being furloughed so Mm -hmm. everyone was asked if they can go go so it's Christmas time Uh, I'd been out of school for eight months at this point. I come back to Toronto and I try to work for a firm. I took a job that I shouldn't have taken. I wasn't excited about the work and I couldn't bring myself to do it. And I ended up leaving that office on bad terms. Now I'm kicked out of school and I'm kicked out of architecture and I don't know what to do. So I spent a full year Outside of all of it, I, I worked as a bartender uh, at, at, in a bar on Adelaide Street in downtown Toronto slinging drinks to 20-year-olds making more money than I did in
0: architecture, which is like- Okay, kind of... okay. The, the, the professional career advice from Nick Savage is not endorsed by the department. <laughs> <laughs> hard, hard to make uh,
1: $500 in a couple hours in architecture, but it's neither here nor there. So um, I was very lucky. Um, uh, at the end of that year, so now we're talking about the beginning of summer, about mm-hmm. four months before September. And I'd been out of school for a year and eight months. Um, you know, I wish that every program could have the administrators that the Waterloo program has. I'm sure there's lovely people at Ryerson, but I had somebody uh, um, looking out for me enough that me having been gone for two years wasn't enough for me to come off the radar. Mm-hmm. So when it came time to re-enroll in those programs, I was presented with an email, here are your options. I either re-enroll you or you drop out of school. So I said, yep, thank you. I would have definitely miss this deadline, <laughs> enroll me. So that got me back into school. Another really lucky accident because happy accidents are gonna happen mm-hmm. in your all the time. So not only did I got fired from, from Steven's group, working on a really cool project even, uh, um, uh, Will Alsop designed uh, um, Subway, transit oh, station. Yep, it was yep. such a cool project, and, but um, it just didn't work. So now I have this job as, as a bartender while I get fired from it as well. Oh wow. so Now what do I do? So, <laughs> I didn't know about In the my, firing
0: from the bartending one. I knew about the other ones, but wow.
1: Well, yeah, listen, I was a bit wild at the time. Um, so uh, I, it's like Thursday night and it's 11 o'clock and I've just lost my job. And so I shoot out a couple emails. I said, what do I have to lose? Mm-hmm. And the next morning, Montgomery Seism hires me. Mm-hmm. So I was able to spend another four months at Montgomery SISM. And I learned two things, which is I missed architects and architecture a lot.
0: Mm-hmm. But,
1: but I, and I loved working at Montgomery SISM. Mm-hmm. But then now I don't have the mental health problems. I'm not exhausted. I've had a moment to regroup. I can sort of see it with new eyes. Okay. I love the profession, but I don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. So boom, September happens and I'm back in school. And so now, just the level of my anxiety was so much less. You know, all architecture students should be told, you don't have to go be architects. Mm -hmm. You just don't. It's a really great education. You're going to meet a ton of interesting people. You're going to go on to have a really great life no matter what you do. You don't have to be an architect. You can still get an architectural education. So from this moment forward, I knew I'm not working for an architect ever again. So uh, what I did was what is often recommended on this podcast is I, I looked for the helpers and I found mm-hmm. a professor uh, that had been designing furniture within the School of Architecture mm-hmm. uh, named John Nakai, who had shown some interest in me, but it also uh, in... Um, designed the rollarounds and the desks for the for the students in the, in
0: the studio furniture studio furniture exactly
1: mm-hmm. uh and he in the hallway next to next to the the dark room
0: mm-hmm.
1: he said talk to gregory ryback that was it it was like i thought we were setting up a meeting mm-hmm. and we were gonna have a big conversation no he just said talk to gregory ryback company called mcm google it get his email address mm-hmm. so Uh, November 30th, I shoot Gregory an email and tell that I'm interested to work for him. uh, And then I sit on it. And then he doesn't respond to me until sometime in the middle of December, five minute conversation. And then in in January, I start. And at this point, I have no idea that Mm I'm just the rest of my life. I really don't. (laughs) But had I not had the wherewithal to ask that question. And then Mm -hmm. one other thing happened before this. Within this two years, I also started building things on my own So Mm -hmm. I was given enough time, what can often happen? And this is the same problem I have right now. I built more things when I wasn't a manufacturer than now that I am. So now (laughs) MCM builds lots of stuff, but Mm -hmm. like I'm not at home, you know, flying a piece of wood, which I Mm -hmm. used to do. So I built a couple of really wonderful projects with a classmate named Jeff Christou, Mm -hmm. really talented guy. Um, This one project that was a canoe shelter for his parents, uh, Mm -hmm. Audison Dazeen, which was really cool. And then we did this other thing where we designed a for the Toronto Botanical Gardens had a a birdhouse competition. Mm -hmm. Every other birdhouse looked like these really beautiful craft birdhouses, Mm -hmm. and then ours looked like it was from outer space. (laughs) We won that. We then went on to win a two thousand dollar check from Ontario Woodworks. Mm -hmm. We, you know, we we. And then I said, okay, I was like addicted. I was so addicted. I had done these two projects, and both of them you know, sure it's nice to get some sort of response back, but it's not, that's not what engaged me. It was the physical act of making these objects and being Mm -hmm. able to see them in real time that I found really, really engaging. And all architects feel this, like Mm -hmm. just look at an architect's face when he gets to go to site or gets to go, or gets to go to a shop or gets to go see a thing physically being done. Like architects want to engage with the physical world. You know, we're stuck behind this piece of glass uh, on our computers. And, and honestly, it, we spend way too much time behind a computer and not enough time out in the world.
0: Hmm. So then basically, just, just to finish off that story, though, like you're, you're talking about a whole bunch of uh, infrastructural things, whether it's the connections with the prof indirectly to get that access, mm-hmm. um, but also um, an individual in the department, in the university, uh, would, would I happen to know this person? <laughs> Um, yeah, uh, I, yeah so, happens so, to be your wife. Uh, no, no. Hey, shh, shh, We cannot say the no. Don't no, no. See, we're being recorded. So <laughs> no, I was. Good, but, I was going to say a that shout out to the. De-
1: that was just a hint. I didn't say her name. This okay, could be I, anybody.
0: oh Yeah, yeah. But I was just going to say I was going to give a shout out to that person. But now that you've mentioned that they are my well, it's my wife. Then um, I'm not going to do that because I'm going to get in trouble. And just for the record, uh, honey, that was Nick, not me, that said that. Um, just in case so so we talk about a whole bunch of ways that a department or a school can help you out in indirect ways, right yeah. but yeah, then, indirect yeah, yeah, but then at the end of the day though you did finish off and you just went straight back to greg 's like fold or like how, how did how did that come about like you yeah, just said so, done
1: um, i did I did the two co ops, and then here's here 's my other advice to to students which is that when I left, so when I left, I, I, I did two co-ops with them. I really enjoyed it. And then, mm-hmm. I, then I finished, uh, finish is maybe a loose term. I actually graduated in the class of 2016, mm-hmm. but I did finish my coursework uh, for the most part with, with my class. I wasn't right. ever full-time in school again after that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so then I was working full-time from there, from there on out. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew that a there's a vastly reduced number of these manufacturing firms out there.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So there is a kind of, architects are spoiled with choice, which (laughs) is to say when they're unhappy at a job, they think that the best thing for them to do is to get a new job. Mm -hmm. So the job that I did at MCM for three years was very, uh, I loved it because I knew what else was out there and, and every six months I could go downstairs and see what was being made. But I sat there and, and I drew cabinets for three years. Mm-hmm. It was not glamorous at all. Now, I was starting from zero. So even to learn enough to do that took a while. Mm-hmm. But then beyond, after I already knew how to do it, I had to keep doing it for a while. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I was not handed the keys on day one. Right. And so you need, you know, if, if the education of an architect takes 40 years, Mm -hmm. then, then you have to have the patience to stick it out. Like, Mm -hmm. you you know, yeah, sure. There's times when you got to go. And and if it's not working and there's no opportunity for mentorship, and you know that this isn't the right place to be, then sure, move on. Mm -hmm. But then I think that, you know, Any architect that wants to go off and practice on their own should have probably sat and worked at an office. And this is what I see. So the typical track for somebody who starts their own office Mm -hmm. are they are uh, stellar in school, they they leave their masters they start in at a sort of mid to large size good practice mm-hmm. and allow them the experience that they need kpmb or diamond management are perfect mm-hmm. examples starting to be partisans frig they're a big office now bit, but anyways they're they're still want to be pretend they're rebels even though they're very much the furniture
0: uh people. they listen too, man what do you get they get my ass in trouble for everything man <laughs> No, but so, so, how many firms can we take off? How many other universities can we take off, man? You, dude, I might not be able to go home after this one.
1: <laughs> so uh, in, in a larger office like these offices, you can grow, you can find mentors, you can learn a lot, you can work on many different scales of projects. And, but then they do it for like 10 years. They grow up. Mm-hmm. So they, they often become associates, uh, junior partners, whatever it is before they yeah. go. They don't start at the bottom and say, this sucks, I'm going to go be the boss. Mm-hmm. They are actually talented enough to probably be the bosses in these offices. But, but, but they have to learn, they have to learn, again, mm-hmm. it goes back to the profession being fundamentally mentorship-based. Mm-hmm. Now, it's obviously, there's no rule transcends all space and time. But you know I know that Alexander Josephson has a, a relationship with Fuchsas. And, mm-hmm. and this I, I'm sure this informed his design sensibility and, and how we wanted to mm-hmm. operate. Like these things, they don't come from zero.
0: So just for the record, those of you guys who aren't aware, Fuxus uh, has some really amazing geometry and a lot of his architectural work is out in Italy. Uh, Take a look at the Milan uh, Gallery, essentially. It's this big, crazy, undulating glass, triangulated canopy that goes like kilometers, right? Um, so yeah, and Alex did work there. Who's the one of the partners for Partisans?
1: Yeah. So uh, Fuchs came and did a lecture and famously claimed to have invented the cantilever box in architecture.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not going to. It could, be,
1: could g- be true. I'm not fact checking that. I'm just saying that was a thing that he came and said to us. So he's a very bold man. And if you've yeah. ever met. He's also a, quite a bold man. So you can somehow, both in their personality and in their design sensibility, you can see a line, right? Which is to say these things, they don't come from, from space. Like, go look at Barraval and now go take a walk through Barcelona. And, and, and they don't even pretend. they nobody saying that they invented that. This is a Gaudi, Spanish-inspired tapas restaurant. Like, it, it, it's not a lie. You're not crazy. And yeah. then this is where the, the question between um, uh, plagiarism and, and,
0: inspiration. and inspiration.
1: And this is critical because mm-hmm. you can't have straight, inspiration doesn't come from, grow out of the ground. It mm-hmm. comes from looking at other projects.
0: Okay, so now let's just talk about looking at not only other projects, but looking at the other facets. Because I think one of the interesting thing about uh, things that you bring about is that architecture is not just simply the illustration of things, right? You talk about the fabrication, you talk about the reality of things, and I just want to come back, you know, and and it's not because we talk about Waterloo for a sec and their great support staff, Um, but I also wanted to draw attention to the fact that at Ryerson we do. Do with architecture, building science, and project management. So it is providing that level of exposure to different That's facets right. of the industry, right. which, which is good, right? But super, then, super good. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and it's not like I paid you to say that. But then the other issue is, of course, you wanted to do a little bit of a shout out because you've actually experienced. Dealing with a handful of our students um, working in industry, and I would say they did a lot of, on, on some of the works that uh, I would say are pretty seminal or, or critical for for MCM going onto the map on on, on a couple of things. so do you want to give a shout yeah. out
1: yeah so so um, um, so back in the day on on the sauNA, uh, Ivan uh, Vasilev was a really critical member of the team. Uh, and then moving forward to Raval, Ivan was also on this project, an ex-Ryerson student. Uh, but then once we got to Raval, Ariel Cook jumped in, and I think believe Ariel's been on this podcast.
0: Yeah, so, oh, what did you? Wow, that, that damn! You are an avid listener. I got to give you credit there, Nick. But yes, yes, and the, the, just to put, make, make mention this thing, Ivan was the, one of the first students I taught when I came and began at Ryerson, coming off of the you know. Order 66 over there. Um, so, and then Ariel was the first co-op year. So it's just interesting that you're doing a lot of firsts, but that's good. Sorry, I didn't mean to. And start, then
1: off. and then right now we've also discussed, you know, we're working on another project for them called Vela. And we have another student of yours named Tanya. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a, you guys are a a good congratulations to Ryerson for uh, giving the students the tools they need to be successful in these uh, sort of highly complicated roles. I would say that uh, specifically that um, actually, so I, when I first saw parametry, I understood it as a a design tool. Mm -hmm. I use parametrics all the time, Mm -hmm. but as a solutions tool. As a uh, method for problem solving, uh, as a way to deal with specific issues like many similar parts or yeah,
0: optimization
1: yep. there's so many things it could do like realistically, I think a, a real a solid understanding of parametry and grasshopper, I think, should be a bare minimum. Uh, to get out of an undergraduate education mm. in architecture in
0: 2020. That's a good call. Very, very good suggestion on that. Uh, I just wish that more schools. And would, it's and it's
1: uh, not just a design tool. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh my god, you know those. If you go look at the at the, I mean, this is using it as a design tool. so this is a bad example, but the the holes the holes for the government job for the Senate mm-hmm. is done in Grasshopper using Rhino, mm-hmm. like uh, the the patterns for the tool paths for Barval done in grasshopper using Rhino, or done in Rhino using grasshopper. Mm-hmm. So these things are being used in real architecture. Uh, mm-hmm. I had dialogue come to me uh, with a problem last week. And do you know what the answer was? It- <laughs> 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 Anyways, it doing Rhino mm-hmm. and grasshopper, mm-hmm. it was a simple problem, but you know, they would have had to f- physically model like 400 different types of pieces mm-hmm. when it's all based off of a perpendicular line that just mm. doesn't follow these consistent radiuses. And it was important to the design that, the, that this line maintain itself as a spline, which is to mm. say a series of, of radiuses that change along the course of the line. So then all of a sudden, okay, you have two options. You can either do this the hard way, or you can do this the smart way. And often the smart way involves involves some method for, for using perimetry and grasshopper. It's a really cool tool. Uh-huh. I didn't lean on it. I was a very physical guy. I like model making. I made play. You know, I made physical models constantly. <laughs> I didn't do a lot of, of digital stuff. Uh, and, but you know what? And I still don't, I don't run or I don't do any of that stuff, but I'm a very hands-on guy. I drive around in an old pickup truck. I wear like a Dickies jacket, but you know what? I use, I use Grasshopper.
0: And so, so that's a shining endorsement for Grasshopper use there. Because um, it's apparently per- per- a uniform. Per- There's a it's, uniform just, now.
1: it's just that Grasshopper seems to have cornered the market.
0: Well, yeah, it's saturated. It's, uh, I mean, the, 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 basically the community around it is very good about being open about things. And, and again, once you've got Rhino, it's, it's pretty much the easiest in, right? I, I mean, I kind of feel bad for the Autodesk guys. The adoption of Dynamo is a little bit more tricky, right? So, yeah.
1: Well, the beautiful thing about Rhino, I'll give you a really good example about Rhino. So um, I'm in a wonderful position that some really amazing architects come to me for private work. So I'm building a boat and uh, I was told not to name drop too much. One of the things I'm really (laughs) thankful for at MCM is that because of the level that Gregory has been able to build this business to Mm -hmm. the best architects in Toronto come to work with us. Mm -hmm. And that has meant that as an ex architect, I am really blown away by the people that I get to work with. Mm -hmm. I really feel like I came in through the side door and that these rooms that I never would have been able to be in, I'm there and there and I'm able to be useful because they've practiced architecture for 40 years, but you know what, they haven't sat there building things, Mm -hmm. you know, seven to 15 hours a day, seven days a week for 10 years. So, you know, by specializing, you can become an expert without becoming 100 years old.
0: Yeah, and I would, I would agree with that. It's, it's about connections. But that brings me to one of my last points, though, because we've talked about the students that you've seen from my side, but you mm-hmm. I think it's important to talk about some of the students that uh, you went to school with and, and how those connections and networks actually make things work.
1: Yeah, certainly. So, so I would have my, one of my other pieces of advice is that, you know, don't network, don't network, don't do it. Make friends. Like, you know, go be around the people that you want to be around, that you like to be around and don't worry about anything else. The school, there's so many talented, smart people at that school that you're at right now. Mm-hmm. Just just be honest and open and, and don't say no to relationships. You know, who we're talking about, who you're alluding to is, an, is a woman from my class who had a very similar experience as I did, which is to say um, she loved architecture but didn't want to be an architect. And she happened to be brilliant. So she then went and decided to become uh, an engineer as well as becoming an architect and now has decided to become a professor as mm-hmm. well. And this, mm-hmm. this person is, what, 30 and change? Anyways, some people are cleverer than other people. But so uh, her name is Andrea Atkins. We all knew her as Murph, Murph. back in the yep. day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she went on, uh, she focused on, on engineering. She did this, was the first person to do this sort of joint engineering architecture, mm-hmm. wasn't a degree at the time. It was like a, I don't know what it was to be honest. Cause now it's a thing. Now there's this thing that she's a helped degree, yeah. Jonathan ends that is architecture within the engineering department.
0: Architectural engineering at Waterloo. Department. Yep.
1: exactly. So, so, but she had done something weird like that earlier that wasn't so official, ended up working for Blackwell. Mm-hmm. And then she sat there for Blackwell working for five years. Mm-hmm. And I sat in MCM working for five years. At this point, we haven't said boo to each other. Now, all of a sudden, one job happens where my boss for a private project needs some engineer to stamp a glass railing. And I think, well, who's the only engineer I know? I reach out to Andrea. It went so well that then there was the next job, and then there was the next job, and then there was the next job. And before you know it, Andrea is the byline on the Senate of Canada the university of lethbridge uh, the the you know did the, these beautiful stairs that we produced for in studio at spinmaster and at aerop she did, she engineered these things really mm-hmm. in some cases you know a light touch pick a screw, in some cases, she redeveloped the entire structural package for these stairs, Mm -hmm. and and one thing that I really love is that, you know, so now we have, you know, the architect, one thing that the architect loves when they work with Andrea and I, is they have a fabricator and they have an engineer, and Mm -hmm. both of those people, understand the struggle that they're going through to try to get this job accomplished. And we're both on their side to try to get it there because we also care what it mm-hmm. looks like and how it is. We also want it to be as good as it can be. And we also speak their language. So oftentimes, you know, I didn't do this intentionally, but as, as a custom manufacturer, you know, as an architect, the last thing you need is 500 other architects. Mm-hmm. But now that I'm a custom manufacturer, everyone in their cousin calls me with questions and things all the time because, because everyone I know is an architect. Mm -hmm. I'm a person that services architects. So in some ways, a slight shift to the left or to the right can actually really help you uh, to sort of bring that success or that happiness to your life.
0: Yeah, I I think that a lot of students in school at least think that it's competitive, where it's like, it's me and you, we're both going to be architects. So it's going to be me against you at some point. But that story that you just raised is very, very good because there's so many There's such a huge spectrum of career paths that one can take upon themselves with an architectural education so don't see them as your competition see them as complementary. if anything correct correct
1: absolutely and I, I mean it I mean it I mean it that that the value that you take away from that school is 80% of it is in your classmates in their physical presence in their in their being friends with you you know we discussed that I had that I didn't actually graduate in 2012 you know I ended up becoming very very close with my second class mm-hmm. and I sort of sat with them while they went through their master's degree at U of T and, and their relationship with me and their friendship with me was really what helped me to finish school. Mm-hmm. Surround yourself with good people. Mm-hmm. Like really. And then here's the other thing if, if Ryerson could learn anything from Waterloo architecture, Cambridge, it's that when you go to school there, there's nothing else around you. And so what this creates is a really strong, uh, studio culture.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, If you are working on your studio project from home and you think that your project's going to be just as good. It's not,
0: Mm. it's not, you know what, thank you more
1: time. And then I'll, here's one other piece of advice. Go be in studio for all. I think of it as a job. Every hour that you're asked to be in studio, be there. Don't be there from 11 at night till four in the morning. Like go there and sit there for, for, from show up early, get there at 830, spend the day. If you want to work late, work from seven to seven, that's 12 hours. That's enough. And go home and eat your dinner and go to bed. So you can the, go to studio, go to studio do your work in studio. If you're doing it from home, you know, if you're doing it from home, go do an online education. Yep. Like don't even go to school to at Ryerson, like that SLU, that student, I don't know what you FLC guys think. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking at a sketch of it right now.
0: Mm-hmm. Why, why are you not there every day? Cause they're in studio. Um, but, but you do raise a good point though, Nick. Um, I think that, uh, one of the reasons why at the outset of doing this podcast like like you heard from day one like the, the whole reason why I did this podcast was just because in light of the pandemic it was just trying to connect all the kids together because they're all over the world literally right so um, th- this is trying to make sure that that not studio culture but a sense of culture is connecting and, and um, hopefully it's actually paying off but you're right get your butts in studio once the pandemic's over um, and make sure that you actually take, take Nick's advice not me and it's not like I'm paying Nick to do this uh, it's just it's to your advantage kids to have that network Sorry, not the n-word i mean no it's not friend work yes yes i'll I'll switch out the n-word with the f-word Friends.
1: (laughs) jeez louise if somebody just took a snippet of this podcast we might be in trouble
0: Uh, don't worry h.r ryerson loves me and you know who i'm talking about Uh, Um, what
1: was that part about the
0: n-word versus the (laughs) f-word i said i said the f-word was less offensive than the n-word see i I think that i think that would fly today (laughs) um anyways nick man you could get my butt in trouble Even in a different university. Okay. So um, I know that you got other things to do and I've taken up enough enough, of your time, but I want to also say, Nick, I'm going to leave an open invitation because I told you before off, off, uh, before recorded that I would like to get you in for another uh, show uh, somewhere down the line. So for sure that's going to happen. And again, Ladies and gentlemen, if you guys are listening and have a chance to take a look at the show notes, take a look at just some of the work that MCM's done, some of the stuff that we've mentioned that uh, they part and parcel worked with uh, Partisans, uh, Diamond Schmidt. And you'll see the level of work that is necessary to actually bring really cool ideas into reality. And more importantly, that that knowledge base that you've got to have, like everything that Nick's talked about, whether it's the friend slash network connections, all the way down to just professional experience and how things are made, getting your hands dirty and getting stuff done, and even working in the studio. All those things are critical to success. Not only just now but certainly as you move forward. And I hope, you know, just hearing a lot of this, the passion, a lot of the kind of inspirational things that Nick has gone through, like he didn't, he, he didn't have the most direct line of getting to where he is, right? And I think a lot of students, especially that are in the beginning of their architecture career, really stand to benefit from listening to some of the stories that you've got that, that may help guide them and reassure them that they're on the right course. So thank you for that, Nick.
1: Listen. Uh, you can put my my email address in these show notes, and, and literally anybody that needs anything, uh, I'm available to them.
0: Oh, no, Nick, you don't want to do that. You're talking to the guy <laughs> with the largest architectural undergrad program in Canada, man. That's, that's going to be rough, man. <laughs> It'll be like, God damn it. Vince, I, I, I had to can, change up my email, get a new I, alias. Vince,
1: Vince, I have, I have 1600 unread emails in my inbox. I will get through them. Uh, I will manage. I promise.
0: Oh, it's, now it's a competition. Let me see. Oh, I got 26,671. I just checked mine. Feet you. Uh, uh, yeah. But in any event, Nick, thank you very much, and I will be getting you down again, and I hope that uh, everyone benefit from listening. I, actually, I know that if you're listening to this right now, you're probably just like in awe of just what has uh, gone on in one person, probably something that he said probably resonates with you. So that's the kind of stuff we wanna have, and Nick, thank you very much for sharing the time, and I'll get you back next time, man.
1: Of course, thanks for doing this, Vince.